Well, hey, everybody, it is great to see you, and I have an observation to make. Who else is with me? We should get an extra hour of sleep every Saturday night. Yeah? yeah? All I'm saying is I've had 16 cups of coffee, and I am so ready. So buckle up. It's going to be a good day here at Keystone. Anyway, we are in the third week of a series that we've called The Essentials. And in order to get us going today, I want to tell you about a conversation that I had a little over a week ago that, at least for me, really reinforced the need for this series. So here's kind of how it went down. It was mid-afternoon on a Tuesday, and I was seated in the center seat of the last row of a Delta airline bound for Atlanta, pastor first class. There you go. And, uh, and it, was, it was, you know, midway through the flight when the woman seated next to me tried to engage me in conversation. She was one of those people, if you know what I mean. <laughs> However, as I also am one of those people, we began to talk. And uh, she shared with me that she had spent the last 30 years or so managing an Arby's outside of Lansing, Michigan, and that she was bringing her team to a conference to help them do what they do better, a gathering of the greatest minds in the fast food industry. That's how she described it. Uh, and then she said, you know, why, where, why are you going to Atlanta? Um, and as it turned out, answering her question was going to require me to publicly identify as a pastor. Because I was going to Atlanta to meet with a group of other pastors. And to be totally honest, I'm often a little hesitant to tell people that I'm a pastor because what happens when someone finds out you're a pastor is the conversation abruptly and inalterably changes, okay? Generally, people begin with, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry that I swore. <laughs> and I'm always like, it's okay because I don't know what a swear word is. No, I'm just kidding. That's a right? Yeah. Um, but what they do is then they begin to sort of confess their sins to me, which is just awkward because I'm on in the center seat. I can't get out, right? And then, you know, other people will start to monologue to me about how hurt they were by the church or how hurt someone they love was by the church. And so all that to say, I always try to get a read on somebody before telling them what I do for a living, right? And you got to picture this lady. I mean, she's super cool, super peaceful, and she had those librarian chains on her glasses. So I thought she's probably quality. I'll just tell her. And, uh, and so I did. I did. I said, you know, I've been in church leadership now for over 20 years, and in response, you can't make this up, she like rocks back away from me, right? Leans into the window and goes, no way, you're a pastor? And I thought to myself, apparently I don't look like a pastor. And then I thought, what does a pastor look like? I don't even know. But anyway, then she said, oh, I haven't been to church in forever. And most of my friends haven't either, even though, you know, we grew up in church. She's I work at the restaurant in the community where I lived, and we all used to go to church, and now we don't go to church. And I said, well, why did you stop going to church? No judgment. I'm just, you know, curious. And I'm always doing research. You know how this goes. So, so she said, well, she goes, I guess I just slowly became disillusioned by Christians. Both what they said they believed and, and maybe even more how they behaved. And she said, eventually, I got to a point where I was, I'd rather do something with my Sunday mornings other than to gather with a group of people who seemed way more interested in being known for what they were against than what they were for. And then she said, how have you managed to not get cynical about Christians? <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> this won't surprise you if you know me at all, but we spent the rest of the flight 
talking about the content for this series, partly because it was in the hopper, so to speak, um, but partly because, as I confessed to her, I said Christianity really is experiencing a profound challenge in our time, especially among young people. And the challenge stems from certain groups of Christians adding things to the list of things that must be believed in order to be a Christian. But see, these things are not necessarily what Jesus intended for his followers. Sometimes they can even take things in the wrong direction. Which, of course, brings me to the question that drives this entire series. The question goes like this. So, okay, what beliefs are essential to the Christian faith? In other words, if somebody's going to be a Christian, what must they affirm? What's absolutely critical that they agree to and what isn't? And uh, so what I want to do before I jump into our conversation for today, uh, in case you're joining us for the first time, is I want to just take a few minutes and catch you up. Because this is week three. So we've spent two weeks exploring two different essentials of the Christian faith. So the first week, we did the one that I said, you know, first and foremost, most important one of all, Christians believe that Jesus is God's son and our king. In other words, for someone to be a Christian, they need to believe that Jesus was and is the long-promised son of God who was sent by God to earth and who will one day rule all people in the kingdom of God. Uh, and as we noted uh, that first week, this idea is pretty much the only thing that Christians have universally agreed upon since the beginnings of the church. And so consequently, it's sort of the thing around which everything else is organized and prioritized. So that's what we talked about in week one, Jesus is God's son and our king. And then last week, we reflected on the absolutely incredible reality that Jesus came to show us what God is like. And as we said, you know, what this means practically is whenever you find yourself thinking about God, both what he's like and how he feels about you, you really should think about Jesus. Said a bit differently, according to Jesus, the closest that you and I can get to understanding what God is like is him. He came to put his heart on display. And, I've, and I argue that that is the second essential of the Christian faith. All right, so that said, today what I want to do is uh, to explore the third essential. And unlike the previous two weeks where we kind of got to the essential right at the end, I want to let you know right up front where we're going, um, and then I'll show you how we got there. But uh, so it goes like this. Christians need to believe that Jesus came to do what only he could do. In, in other words, Jesus came to solve a problem that only he could could solve. And with the rest of our time together, I want to show you what I mean by that. And in order to get us moving in that direction, in order to sort of talk about the, uh, how Jesus was a solution to a problem, we first need to be made aware or maybe reminded of the problem. And so to that end, um, I want to take you back to the first story in the Bible. It's actually the first story ever. And it's found in an ancient document that we call Genesis. Um, and in Genesis, the author begins his account of the creation of the universe with these words. This is Genesis 1.1. He writes, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He said, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And I mean, I grew up in church. I read this more times than I can count. And I always thought it was weird that before there was anything, there was water. It's just strange. 
And then eventually one day when I was training to be a pastor, I sat through a lecture with somebody way smarter than me. And he explained that to ancient people, water represented chaos. And it was leveraged by the author of Genesis as an image used to identify a state prior to creation. It was chaos. It was disorder. It was potential. But it was all swirling around in chaos. Well, as the account of Genesis continues, the author noted that God spoke into the chaos, and in a very real sense, his words became flesh. Specifically, out of the disorder, God created things, well, things like light and sky and dirt and vegetables and animals, and then on the final day of creation, people. And the author of Genesis affirmed that in the beginning, when God created all these things, everything that was created was good, and it was whole, and it was unified. God intended it to work together in beauty and harmony. Said a bit differently, in the beginning, everything had a place, was in its place, and was just as God intended it to be. There was, in a very real sense, peace on earth. Peace between people and God, peace between people and other people, peace between people and the natural world, and even peace within each individual person. And the author goes on to note that, um, and th this is really where the story gets interesting, I mean, the whole thing's interesting, but he tells us that because God so loved the people who he had created, that he actually provided them a way to reject him. And here's what I mean. From the very beginning, God desired that his relationship with the first people be based on love and trust. And he knew that in order for love and trust to be genuine, people would have to have a way to signal to him that they no longer desired to be with him. And if that surprises you, it, it, it probably shouldn't because if you think about it, it's really no different than in our relationships. Here's an example from my own life. If I'm being honest, when I was a courtin', <laughs> my wife Sarah Ann, right, we've married almost 20 years, um, I always knew that there was a chance that she would break off our relationship. That choice was hers. And, and plus, if you knew me back then, um, you would have had this thought, but as I was dating someone way out of my league, there was a very good chance that she just might break it off, right? And in fact, after a year of dating and a courting, uh, that's why I chose to propose to her on the top of the Empire State Building in New York City. Oh, sleepless in Seattle vibes, right? Yeah. But here's the thing. Everyone thought that I was being romantic, but honestly, I was being pragmatic because I figured that if she said no, then I could just jump. No. <laughs> Just I wouldn't actually do that. No, but, but my point is this. Relationships based on love must be rejectable. And that's true for us. And as it turns out, it's true for God. Um, I love how uh, there's a conservative theologian named Norman Geisler. Um, and he wrote a book years ago on, on this topic. And I love how he phrased it. Here's, here's what he wrote. He said, since God is love, he cannot force himself on anyone against their will. He says, forced love is not love. So God does not force himself on anyone. Instead, he writes, he woos people to himself with gentle love. If you think about it, that makes sense. 
Because as soon as coercion enters a relationship, the possibility for authentic love evaporates. And so that's why God, who has always wanted to be with people who want to be with him, provided a way for those first people to signal to him that they wanted to break off their relationship. You say, well, how would he ever do that? And, and the author of Genesis tells us, well, God planted a tree in the center of the garden where he had placed the first people and then gave them the following instructions. He said to them, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And just notice a couple of things about this passage. First, that since the very beginning, God has given people a choice. He says, you're free to do really whatever you want to do. And if you trust me, then obey me. So that's the first thing you see in this passage. The second is that from the very beginning, there have been consequences to not following God's instructions. In fact, I would argue that, um, that this moment in history actually served to establish a pattern that still plays out in our world today. And, and I describe it like this. Sin always comes prepackaged with consequences. In other words, you and I are free to choose our behavior but we don't get to choose what happens to us as a result of our behavior. And if you think about it, you already know that that's true. I and mean, we've all done things that we knew were wrong in the moment and then eventually suffered consequences as a result. So we get to choose what we do, but we don't get to choose what happens after we choose to do what we choose to do. All that to say, God told the first people that if they chose to step outside of his suggested boundary for their behavior, there was a consequence, they would die. So death was the consequence of, of disobedience. And as many of you know, as the story continues, eventually the day came when those first people made a choice that in a very real sense has shaped the experience of all of us. They began to suspect that God was holding out on them and that they could find a better life outside of his boundary. So the author of Genesis Describe the moment when literally everything changed this way. He wrote, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then look at this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. Now, as a kid in church, I got to be honest with you, third grade, first time I really paid attention to this story, and I laughed out loud because it was naked and I was in third grade. And I got a look, okay, from Miss Lori, who was teaching the class, forever burned into my conscience. Sometimes when I say stuff I shouldn't say up here accidentally, I'm like, Miss Lori's just like, maybe she's God's angel. I have no idea. But anyway, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. It was the most, one of the most significant moments in all of human history. Because everything changed and the first people immediately knew it. See, the creation, which had been designed by God to be whole and unified and peaceful, and when they made that choice, it shattered into countless pieces. I, I love how uh, an author by the name of Donald Miller described this moment in his book, Searching for God Knows What. He, he wrote this. He said, man, and the man here is human, so men and women were wired so that they got their glory their security, and their feeling of purpose from God. And this relationship was so strong and God's love was so pure that Adam and Eve, those first people, felt no insecurity at all. 
So much so that they walked around naked and didn't even realize they were naked. This also tells us something about winter. It's part of the fall. Thank you very much. Um, but when the relationship was broken, they knew it instantly. He says this feeling must have been so painful for Adam and Eve. This feeling of having an infinite amount of love pouring through their lives and then suddenly it's gone. He said, I wonder at times how horrible it must have felt. The fear of no longer feeling God. The ache of emptiness and the sudden and horrifying awareness of self. He's like, God, have mercy. This moment was the birth of insecurity in the human race. I'm telling you, when those first people chose not to trust God, something unthinkable happened. Peace on earth was disrupted and death and sin entered the human story for the first time. It's no exaggeration to say things would never be the same. And, and we, we see this every day. Uh, people are sick. People are broken. People hurt other people. People die. And, and honestly, if, if we watch the news, we're, we're aware of more than that because it's almost like something's wrong with people, but something's wrong with creation itself. Like, there's no way that things like hurricanes and tsunamis and tornadoes and droughts and floods were a part of a good and loving God's plan in the beginning. They, they weren't. They're, they're evidence of the reality that peace, as God intended it, has been disrupted on planet Earth. Things are no longer the way that they were supposed to be. Okay, so now before, before we move on, I just want to pause to point out something that I think is incredibly significant for us to understand. And I'll, I'll, I'll put it like this. When something happens that breaks your heart, it breaks God's heart too. It really does. Like every time someone gets sick or is in pain, every time a child uses their freedom to make a mess of their future, every time a life is lost due to a war or a natural disaster, like every time our hearts ache, whenever something breaks your heart, it breaks God's heart too because because that stuff was not part of his plan in the beginning. See, as it turns out, you know, there's the, the non-redemptive pain in our lives, and there certainly is pain that can be redemptive, but the non-redemptive pain in our lives is really the price of freedom. And, and, and so not surprisingly, this reality was repeatedly affirmed in letters to early Christians that were eventually included in the New Testament of the Bible. Let me show you just one example. Um, in a letter to early Christians living in the city of Rome, which was the capital of the world at that time, and these Roman Christians were struggling to reconcile a good God who has revealed to us in Jesus with the pain they were experiencing in their world and in their lives. So Paul writes to them to say, this is, this is what happened when the first people chose to sin. It sort of affected and infected us all. So Paul, Paul said it this way. He wrote, just as sin entered the world through one man, speaking of Adam and, and Adam and Eve and their choice, and death through sin, he said in this way, so that was their one sin, but he says in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. It's like Paul says, listen, you guys have to understand when those first people chose to sin for the first time, their sin was different than any subsequent sin because they chose to sin in the context of a world that was free from sin. They chose to sin in the context of a world at peace, something we've never understood. So they really had no excuse. I mean, 
No one had done anything to them that would have led them to sin. They couldn't blame their parents. They couldn't say they didn't know any better. They didn't feel insecure and decide to sin in order to feel better for just a moment. Like they willingly chose not to trust God. Like from a place of perfection with total clarity of mind, they turned from him. And as a brief aside, I used to think poorly of them. I would think like, how in the world could they do that? How dare they? But then there was one day I was listening to a lecture in seminary and I recognized something, and maybe you'll resonate with this. I think if they hadn't, I probably would have, right? And if you're honest, you probably would have too. Anyway, if you think about it, all of our subsequent disobedience, all of our subsequent sin happens in the context of a broken world. And it's really impossible to overstate the significance and seriousness of our problem then because well, there's no way for any human... Oh, Siri, hello. She's, I must have, she, was, she has some thoughts. Thank you for listening, Tim Cook. I don't even know. I didn't know you were a regular podcaster. All right. So yeah, but there's no way for any... Are you kidding me right now? I'm, now I'm blaming North Korea. That's how that goes. All right, no, just kidding. So it's hard to overstate the significance of our problem because there's no way for any human to be the remedy for the diseases of sin and death. Like those first people created the problem from a state of perfection, and so any remedy would require another perfect person, like a second Adam, who would of his free will choose to trust God's boundaries perfectly. But how could there ever be a second Adam? I mean, this individual would need to be a totally different type of human being. And as it turned out, that was precisely what God had in mind. And that's why around 2,000 years ago, God dispatched a messenger to a teenage girl living in a city called Nazareth in the north of Roman-occupied Israel to deliver an incredible message. God's plan to restore the peace that had been lost in the Garden of Eden was about to take a massive leap forward. Here's what the angel told her. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. His kingdom will never end. Jesus is God's Son and our King. But I'm telling you, with this interaction, Mary learned that she was going to be the mother of a very special son whose name, Jesus, or Yeshua, literally means God is salvation. In other words, God will rescue us. God is going to fix what's wrong in our world. And so Mary gets this message, and not surprisingly, she has a question for the angel. It's a good question. She says this, how will this be since I am a virgin? In other words, Mary assumed that during angel training class, he must have been sleeping when they talked about human babies were made, you know, a little confused. And so, and so, uh, and, and so she kind of, you know, how can this be? And so the angel attempted to clear things up. He said, um, oh, no problem. The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born to you will be called the Son of God. And I'm sure Mary would have thought like what all of us would have thought at that point, something like, oh, great, that totally clears it up. Thank you. I'm so glad I asked the question, right? Yeah. So Mary had no idea what this meant other than 
the fact that something totally unprecedented was afoot, she was going to carry a human who was way more than a human. She would carry a human who would be born under incredible circumstances and who would not have a human father, biologically speaking. He would be the son of God. He would be, in a very real sense, a second Adam. And then Mary had her child and watched him grow. And then uh, after living on earth for about 33 years, Mary's son would do what only he could do. He lived a perfect life, perfectly in harmony with God's plan. And as he taught, people recognized how twisted they were on the inside. It's like he was light in darkness. And people began to see things that they had never seen before. And then as Jesus healed, they were given glimpses into how things were supposed to be in the beginning and will be one day again in the end before peace was disrupted. And then Jesus gave himself over to be crucified. And in the moment that he died, and this is so significant for us to understand, the only human in history who didn't deserve to die, died. The wages of sin is death. Everybody who's born into sin has to die. Jesus wasn't born in sin. He didn't didn't live in sin, so he didn't need to die. That's the consequence for sin. So the only human in history who didn't deserve to die, died. And when he died, everything changed again. Uh, Paul described it this way in his letter to the Christians in Rome. He wrote, just as one trespass or one sin resulted in condemnation, so death will come for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. In other words, when Jesus died, he became, in a very real sense, the remedy for the problem of sin. Because he paid off the debt that sin had created between people and God and made a way for people to restore their relationship with God individually. And then three days later on that first Easter Sunday, when he rose from the grave, he became the remedy for death. And Paul described that reality in a letter to Christians living in Greece. Here's what he said. He said, for since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ Jesus all will be made alive. See, that's what I mean when I say that a third essential of the Christian faith is the belief that Jesus came to do what only he could do. He's the second Adam sent by God to lead home anyone who desires it. Because as it turns out, even after Jesus, God still loves people enough not to force them to be with him. He loves you enough to not force you to be with him. And so he made a way And then invited you and me to trust that way. That's that's why I always say that the cross is like a universal invitation, but not necessarily a universal salvation. He invited you, but you still need to respond in faith because that's the sort of relationship that he desires with you and really all people 
because he loves us. And it's been that way since the very beginning. And we will continue our conversation next week. But for now, uh, if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand. And I'll close our time together in prayer. Um, just a special um, offer today. Um, that sounded like an infomercial. It didn't mean to be. But um, if you've come and you've often wondered what it means to put your faith in Jesus, and maybe for you something clicked today, uh, we would love to meet you under the screen to the left and just pray with you. Uh, just a prayer to accept that gift of salvation on an individual level. Uh, we'd be honored. And um, also, if you come in here and just would love to connect with somebody to pray over you for any other reason, we would love to do that as well. But uh, for the rest of us, let me close our time. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your love. Thank you for loving us in our rebellion. Thank you for loving us when we are so unworthy of your love. And thank you for making us worthy by the blood of Jesus. Thank you that in him we are adopted as your children. And thank you for the peace on earth that is on the way because of what Jesus secured when he died on the cross and rose from the grave. May we be people who carry that hope with us into every interaction that we have. Our world needs to know of your love. And so um, we gather here because 2,000 years ago you sent your one and only son among us as one of us so that we might feel that love in a way that we can understand. And so we will forever thank you for the gift of Jesus. It is in his name, the name above all names that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to your friends. We'll see you next week.